Hello, friends. How's it going? My name is Matt Bart. You listen to Looking Sideways Action Sports podcast, the show where I try and cover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Don't worry, it's not another natural selection episode. Um, this one is brilliant. Really, really enjoyed it. It's with Dr. Tony Butt. And what a fascinating conversation this one is. You might not have heard of Tony Butt um, if you want, you know, if you're one of my regular cross-discipline listeners. And I really implore you to check this one out. I know that people make a value judgment on whether to listen to episodes based upon whether they know the person or not. And all I'm going to say is if you've if you've got any doubts, give it a listen. I've been trying to make this one happen for a few years now. For a few reasons. Firstly, because Tony is one of the UK's legitimate big wave surfing legends. Um, he will blush to hear me say that, but it is true. To prove the point, here's what Nathan Carter said about Tony in a recent Wavelength magazine interview. Um, Dr. Tony Bort is an absolute big wave legend and still charges. He was doing his thing before it was cool and is probably the British big wave surfer with the most giant paddle waves under his belt. He and the other surfers you referenced, this is the person that was interviewing him, um, Andrew Cotton, Tom Lowe and Tom Butler, have ridden the majority of their large and average waves outside of the southwest of England and that is for good reason. This is something we talk about in the conversation, um, how Tony's search for big waves led him to the northern coast of Spain where he still lives now. But his big wave feats aren't the only topic of conversation he's also a hugely influential figure in surfing for his work on wave forecasting and oceanography which he's explored both through his academic work and also his um, hugely influential journalism that's twice i've used the phrase hugely influential and i make no apologies for it um journalism for titles such as the surfer's path and latterly magic seaweed he's a total legend um albeit a very self-effacing and unassuming one and this conversation covers a lot of topics from mortality and how this affects your self-perception to the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and how this affects your surfing, as well as lots of interesting insights and tales from Tony's life as one of our supreme big wave chargers. I'll be back at the end for a special Olympic housekeeping corner. But in the meantime, here's me and Tony. Enjoy. Asturias, so about it's about an hour away from where I live, right? Um, and it's created a load of jobs, which is kind of like a a thing that I'm always really suspicious about. You know, if somebody comes in from the outside and puts a big factory somewhere, and they say it's going to create a load of jobs, and all it does is just destroy the environment and create some jobs for about a year, and then and then they then they fuck off, and and then we're left, you know, with nothing again. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Amazon is, I'm not sure. I mean, I use Amazon, but I get a lot of shit for it. It's hard to escape though, isn't it? You know, it's hard to, it, it is so convenient. And, it, you know, even like this, the fact that I was like, okay, I'm going to send you a mic now. And it was literally there the next day and then we can do it now. I mean, yeah, like you say, for the consumer, it's it's, it's pretty amazing really. But have you seen that film Nomadland? Have you heard of that? I have. It rings a bell. Um, remind me, what's it about? It, it definitely, I must have seen it because I recognise the name. 
it's Francis McDormand and it's about uh, a town in America um, where the main factory closes down. <clears throat> so basically the town had been built, you know, like presumably the industrial revolution era um, based around a factory, like a lot of those American towns were. And they closed the factory down. So everybody in the town either leaves or has to find new work. And she ends up working in an Amazon distribution center and living out of a van, basically. Um, and yeah, it's basically a very, very well done commentary on the damage that this model of globalization is is wreaking on local communities. And yeah, mm. it's really good. If you've not seen it, I, I recommend it. I haven't. I know. I, I, I know. I've seen it advertised, um, and you know, it was, it's kind of on my list to to watch. But I haven't haven't seen it, so I will watch it uh, tonight or tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. So did you get a wave? Do you have a surf? Surf. I don't know if you can call it surf. I I, I spent about an hour paddling around in circles, so I did quite a lot of exercise. Um, uh, you know, I I I kind of forgot to do a wave predict prediction for myself because i was like doing all these wave predictions for magic seaweed and all this other stuff and i like and also kind of looking too far into the future so i forgot to like look at what it was today so then i and then i just got in the car and then i also forgot to put the right i mean you know before we only used to have one board didn't we now i've got like 18 boards so i had the wrong <laughs> boards in the car so i had this 9-0 gun which i which was in the car from last week when it was like 15 foot and then I had this other board that is kind of like almost like a long board or a, not, I don't, I hate the word minimal, but it's, it's like a seven Oh, um, mid length is the thing they call it nowadays. Isn't it? I was going to say, sure, surely that's a mid length these days. That's, 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 what yeah. they, that's the new phrase, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so it's like a, it looks like a door. So it's just chopped off at the back. Um, right. It was made by Tom Doidge Harrison in Ireland. I don't know if you heard of him. I do know who he is, yeah. Mm -hmm. Really, uh, really nice guy and really good shaper. And no use whatsoever for the for the sort of six foot fast barreling waves that you know that were that, that was today, which I, I thought it was going to be about two foot and and you know pretty slack, which which that board is really good for. So that's the answer. Um, so you magic seaweed. So do you? Do you check Magic Seaweed? <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you. I've got to say, yes, I do, because they'll be listening if you're, if you're going to put this on. Um, I do. I use it for when I do the predictions for them. Um, but then when I do my own predictions or predictions for something else, like, for example, today, again, it's sort of a bit like... Uh, um, bit con not controversial, but a bit kind of people are going to go. What the hell's he doing? Doing a prediction wave prediction for a big wave contest, which is true because I hate contests and I hate big. I think big wave contests are like um, the antithesis of what I think of surfing is. But there's a big wave contest in a place called Punta Galea in the Basque Country, and people who run it are like good friends of mine from where, when I live there. And I couldn't really say no, and it's not really affecting me because now I don't live anywhere near the Basque Country. So, um, and so I've just been doing that this morning, and I use I use magic seaweed a little bit, but use loads of other resources, loads of other charts, and um, 
mostly for the wind. There's all these different wind models. I don't know if you know Windy, windy windy.com. Yeah, I have I have heard of it. I I mean, I'm very much, I mean, I do check Magic Seaweed. Like, I'm very much a a layman with these things. So, um, you know, Wind Guru is another one, isn't it, as well? Um, Mm -hmm. That's really good for wind um, because you can change the models. Yeah, you can, or the, I mean, the, a model is is a is a is a computer program that predicts the future, basically. Yeah, um, and there's different program, different programs in different computers all around the world, and so you can once if they start really agreeing with each other, then then you're on to something, you know. Right. Um, but if they differ quite a lot, then then you know you've got a lot, a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, um, and that's mostly with the wind. I've got so many questions already. Um... Okay, the first question I'm going to ask is, why do you think big wave contests are the antithesis of what surfing is to you? Um, well, they are. It is. It's not. What, it's not a theory. It's. <laughs> um, I mean, for. I suppose I, I ought to go right back to why I decided that I like big waves in the first place. And why I decided I like surfing, really. Um, please, please do. Goes goes <laughs> goes far back as you want. Goes detailed and geeky as you want. Um, well, I mean, if you want to, I mean, later if you want to ask me, kind of where you know where I came from and all this kind of thing. What am I doing here? And what, what, but um, the the answer, I suppose, part of the answer to that question is, I'm not a competitive person, and I really, when I'm when I'm in the water. Um, you know, if there's somebody else trying to compete with me, I'm, I'm, I never try to compete with other people, but if there's somebody else trying to compete with me, then I, and it gets worse and worse, you know, then I just get, go to pieces and don't catch any waves and just, um, you know, I'm uh, just a total total wanker in the water as far as surfing ability is concerned. Well, um, as, as in when it gets all sort of elbows out, Darwinian, like, you know, biggest alpha gets 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 the peak and is that you know that situation that we've all kind of experienced in surfing is that what you is that what you're talking about there what i'm well what i'm what i'm talking about is people not the sort of biggest local or biggest alpha male or anything like that more like sort of um people who have been who do nothing they don't know any better you know they've been trained to them you know they've been trained to surf to compete yeah. So, so when they're not in a contest, they're in a lineup and they're training for for a contest. So they so then they're just competing with everybody else in the lineup. Yeah. And the um, their sort of idea of a successful surf session is that they caught all the waves and got really good waves, and the other guys didn't catch any good waves because that's what it would be if it was a contest. And that's you know, to me, that's the antithesis of what surfing an enjoyable surf session is, you know, for, for me, like, which <clears throat> I'm really lucky, you know, that, that, that doesn't, I can avoid that, you know, it doesn't happen. I mean, it didn't happen today and it hasn't happened since about last summer, you know, six months ago when I made the mistake of paddling out when there was these people trying to compete with me. Um, but, um, yeah, so, you know, the, for me, um, uh, a good a good surf session is like three or four of your mates, you know, um, and you take it in turns, and then you get a couple of good waves, and then you you think, oh, I've got a couple of waves now. It'd be really good if that guy got a good one. Then I can like, um, you know, watch him surfing it. 
or even in some spots you you can take off two or three on a wave which is even better you, um place i surf in south africa called sunset reef um you, you know sometimes like a set comes and somebody goes family wave or somebody paddles for the wave and they call in the the guy on the inside you know so if like like in that case you know like you say the sort of alpha male <laughs> head local sort of guy which there is a couple of people like that I and mean, they've got far more experience than me in big waves and if somebody one of those guys calls you in you have to go you know but you're yeah. in front of them you're you're kind of dropping in on them but you're not um and that's fantastic that's so sort of takes away all the stress um you know uh, and and then it's this camp I, I hate the word camaraderie but you know it's like really like surfing part a big part of the enjoyment of surfing is the the social part of it is being with your mates and then you know doing something you like and then watching them doing something they like as well yeah it's so interesting the point you make about almost like the programming i think that was the word you used um i mean i got into surfing fairly late really like it was the last of the board sports that i sort of got into and it's the one i enjoy the most now I've talked about this before on here, mainly because I can see, because I'm so mediocre at it, like I can see improvement, like when, so I'm still hyped on it. And one of the things I find really interesting about surfing is, is how prevalent the idea of what a surfer is, is like in surfing and like how that really seems to have a huge influence on how people behave in certain situations in the water. Um, and, you know, you've just described a few situations there where, you know, if people are like, cause, cause I look at it, like if you're in the water, like you analyze what's going on and you can kind of create the environment that you want, really, you know, like you can, if somebody is going to be that alpha guy for argument's sake, and that, that will, that will kind of dictate the mood of the session. And I'm a bit like you when that happens, I'm not really interested. I tend to just sort of duck out of that. Um, but I, I, I just find it fascinating. Like the, the, this idea of like what surf culture is like the lone wolf, you know, the selfish person, like hoarding waves, like all that stuff, which, which has roots in, in kind of, I'm just going to say surf culture it really does dictate like how people behave and like it, in some environments it just isn't, I just don't think it's fit for purpose. Like where I surf, there's no peak, you know, it's like, it's like a Southwesterly howling onshore, you know, windswell chop fest. So Brighton. like, is it Brighton? Yeah, exactly. So you can't, you can't run a lineup, you know, like you just can't do it because there's no peak. So like, it's, it's so haphazard like the obviously there are locals that have been here for years that can get more waves than the people but people still try and run it like we're on a point break somewhere you know like and 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 i often just think like what you don't need to do that like surely what we need to do is like look at the situation that we've got in like and let that dictate how you behave but that just doesn't so it's really refreshing to hear that's your take on it really because it's quite it's quite rare that you that you hear people sort of talk well it's probably not that rare individually actually because i think if you speak to people individually they would probably say that's their preferred scenario but generally lineups in my experience anyway don't tend to really be like that mm. um so it's interesting to hear i mean is that one of the reasons why you why you moved to spain at the time that you did 
Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of. Uh, it's chasing me, you know. I'm. Um, I'm trying to stay one step ahead, and I keep moving further and further west. And you know, I'm going to fall off the end very, very soon. Um, so, <clears throat> I mean, yeah. I mean, I. You know, you could say my life is a is a surf trip, really. <laughs> um, you know, and which started in the mid 1980s, I suppose, when I when I managed to get myself a van and became independent. Um, and you know, I've, I'm, you know, I was, I'm, I'm not one of these people. My, you know, I'm like, not like. Uh, my dad was a lifeguard. You know, my mum was world champion. Um, you know, I grew up, started surfing when I was one in Hawaii or something. I, I didn't. I started surfing in Bournemouth. Right. So we're just down the road from where you are. You know? Yeah. So I mean, you know exactly. You know, you know the deal. <laughs> yeah, it was an onshore chop fest. It was like that. That was the best surf we had all year. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's amazing when I think about it. But, you know, I mean, a lot of people ask me, you know, when did you start surfing and what? Why did you start surfing? And I can't really remember how I found out about surfing. Um, I think I used to go down to the beach. It wasn't even it wasn't even where they surfed Bournemouth and Boscombe Pier. It was another place called Sandbanks, which, even, which picks up even less swell. But that's I used the, to get that's the posh bit, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a, like the most expensive real estate in in the world, almost, isn't it? Like, yeah, I think it's up, for, it's up there with like Sydney, isn't it, and like Venice Beach. I think in terms yeah. of like how expensive it is. I wasn't. I didn't. You know, I wasn't one of those people. I, I lived in a more of a <laughs> much more modest area, and. Um, so I used to go down to the beach in the summer, I suppose, because uh, I just only thought you could go down to the beach in the summer. And I used to see these people, mostly old ladies, um, riding belly boards. You know, they're just uh, in Spain, that's called planking. Right. Um, and I think that's where I got the idea from because, I, I, you know, it was never on the telly or anything like that or anything. And I, I never, I didn't know that you could stand up on surfboards. Um, so, um, so I got one of these belly boards and then when I found out that you could stand up, my dad, um, glued these pieces of polystyrene foam onto the bottom of this belly board. Right. And I tried, cause it's just to make it float more, you know, and then I tried to stand up on it and then I kept slipping off. So, and I didn't know about wax obviously, or anything like that. So I've got these two bits of towel which my mum gave me and stuck them on the board. And then I was able to stand up and just go along for a bit in the white water. Cause I didn't know, I didn't know anything about green water or, you know, out the back or anything like that. So I invented the first deck grip, I suppose you could say. Right. Astro then, deck. There you go. Yeah. Um, and it took me about two years to actually find somebody who, who had a proper surfboard that, who could sell me one. So, I managed to find one. It was fifteen pounds. It was an Infinity Twin Fin, right? Ten, about four inches thick at the back, right at the very tail. Incredibly um, ugly thing, you know. It was it was an S deck, so so the front of the board was really really thin, and then it just had this like really scooped up sort of nose rocker. It was terrible, right? Um, Fifteen quid, and then so it all took off from there. So, so when was this? What year was this? When we talking? Early seventies, about seventy three, something like that. And was um, there anyone? Did you start to meet other people did, that were that were surfing? Because I imagine back then it was so rare that if you that everyone kind of gravitated towards each other, right? Was that was that 
the way it was. Yeah, yeah. In Bournemouth, you know, it was Boscombe Pier. Um, so there's two piers. You got Boscombe Pier and Bournemouth Pier. But at that time, Boscombe was the place to go. Um, and you go down there, and mm, mostly at that time, it was mostly people from Bournemouth. Um, you know, you get about 10, 15 people in the water sometimes at weekends. And then gradually people started coming from further afield, like Southampton, London. And then there was Kimmeridge, of course, which was like this world class. Well, it is. It's a you know, it's a really, really good setup. If it was somewhere where it picked up more swell, it'd be it'd be epic, you know. Um, and then you know, I found out about Kimmeridge, and then I managed to sort of scrounge a lift off these older guys. You know, we'd go, we'd like um, have about six in the car in the Volkswagen Beetle or something. You know, boards on the roof. Um, and then when I managed to get my own van, I got out of there and moved to Cornwall. Um, and that was a, that's a different that's like another <laughs> it's another chapter you know or another life almost. Um, uh, but you were all, so you were you were sold though that like you, at that point you were I'm gonna well it probably wasn't as conscious of this but your decision making was guided by the fact you wanted to go surfing by the sounds of it. Absolutely, I was just you know I didn't before it was like I didn't know what to do with my life. I was only like ten years old, but I. You know, I knew I knew that I liked the water, and I knew that I liked kind of going fast. You know, <laughs> like I had—I mean, there was no mountain bikes in those days, but I had a like a you know a bike that I sort of um, put wide wheels on it and put these big handlebars on it. And I used to go and do jumps and things, and then go down these these hills and go as fast as I could and fall off and that. And I loved it. And then I also loved going to the beach in the summer, you know, and getting in the water and then going to the swimming pool in the winter. Although I'd never, and again, I wasn't one of these people. I can swim quite good. I can hold my own in 15 foot surf and swim back, you know, Yeah. but I'm not one of these people who was brought up competition swimming in a swimming pool because I thought it was so boring. Yeah. So I spent the whole time jumping off the diving boards, you know, and right. doing bombs and, you know, pushing my mates off and things. Um, and when I discovered surfing, that was it. I just, it, you know, it was like such a magic time in my life. It was kind of, this is what I want to do. And, you know, I never realized that like almost 50 years later, I'd be doing, still doing it, you know? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's what's so great about it. Isn't it? That's why I kind of referred to it as like that, you know, I was going to say like, did you decide to dedicate your life to surfing? But it just doesn't really work like that, does it? It's more like you make a decision and then you make a decision, you know, whether that's like, Oh, I'm going to move to Cornwall or I'm going to buy a van or I'm going to go and check Northern Spain out. And then the accumulation of all those decisions, when you look back, it's like, Oh, that's my life. <laughs> that's, that's what I did. Um, yeah. I mean, thinking about it now, it's like surfing found me really, I suppose. Um, and then all those decisions, like you said, the decision to move to a different place, it, it was easy. It was like, the obvious thing to do really i mean there was a couple of things that sort of helped me along which were sort of um ironically sort of uh things that you could say bad events that happened fairly early on which made me make different decisions from what i would have made and like get out like make, make basically made me decide to not go into the rat race um one was that i lost my father when i was 16 years old and, um, you know, he, 
uh, you know, he worked hard all his life, um, didn't have a very healthy life because he was working hard to make money and, you know, ended up and and he had a heart attack at 57. Wow. Um, You know, I mean, that's probably not the whole story because I never really got to know him very well. But the, the sort of that sort of template, that sort of model of working hard all your life and then, I mean, if he'd... If he liked surfing, he wouldn't have had the chance to do very much surfing because he was working so much. Yeah. And trying to, you know, just trying to make more and more money. He didn't make very much money, but, you know. So I decided not, like, not to do that. I, in fact, one, I remember thinking once, I was just like joking with a couple of my mates when I was like about 20 years old. I said, right, I'm going to live my life in reverse. I'm going to retire first <laughs> and, and, then, and then work if I need to a bit later, you know. <laughs> well, you're ahead of your time. That's like the four-hour work week. That's kind of what everyone's driving for now, isn't it? That's a lot, that is. Four hours. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so formative, 16. Obviously, like, so it was a conscious thing, so it affected you, you know, very obviously it would have affected you, but you processed it in that way at that age. You thought like, oh, okay, so that's a lifestyle thing and that's not for me, really. Yeah, you know, also at that time it was all really you know you had to i mean there was i well, i didn't think i was clever enough to go to university but you know you had to do an apprenticeship or do, or get a trade you know and um and if you didn't do that and then get a proper job i mean the, around that time in the sort of late 70s early 80s it was just before thatcher basically it was all like big um big factories and you got a job for life you know my my father worked for british aerospace you know, and that was a job for life. Um, and that was what you're expected to do if you weren't clever enough to become a lawyer or something like that. Um, and, you know, I, I thought that's, I didn't really, I thought that's just a waste. So I, um, basically, but, you know, it was looked upon quite badly by by loads of people, you know. <laughs> so like, you know, um, you are quite clever. That'll be just a, like a total waste of a life if you become a surfer and just bum around in a VW van, you know, which I did for 10 years. Right. But yeah. Got a PhD. So, you know, laugh, laugh, so, laugh on them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just a cut. God, I, that's what my mum said to me when I went to do a snowboarding season, like, which was like 1997, you know, like I got offered a job at a newspaper in Sheffield and it was like sliding doors moment. Oh, okay. Like, what am I going to do? Am I going to do this? Am I going to go snowboarding? And obviously I chose snowboarding and yeah, definitely had the like, Oh, you know, you're going to regret that kind of thing. Um, yeah, it's funny. Uh, hopefully that is less prevalent that, that type of attitude now. Um, I, I, do you mind if I ask you one more question about, about your dad? Is that if, yes, if, please. If, yeah, no problem. Um, so 57, how old are you now? Six, just uh, 60 and 11 months. So did you hold that date, that age? Was that significant for you? Like to, when, to when I was 57? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought about it all the time. I think about it all the time and I, I still think about it now. Because, um, you know, I mean, I might die tomorrow, you know. <laughs> I don't really feel... <laughs> I mean, he was he was quite ill for a few years before before he popped off, but he didn't. He kind of hid it, you know. He didn't. We didn't really know what was wrong with him, and but he had he had you know um, uh, his arteries were blocked up, and 
um, you know, typical coronary heart disease that is a lot more recognized now than it was in the late 70s. Um, and I don't think I've got that. I mean, I've just, last week I was surfing about 15 foot waves and I had about 15 waves on the head and seemed to be all right, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, ride my bike around. Um, don't do much running anymore because I broke my Achilles tendon. But, uh, you know, I, th- I think I'm fairly fit for my age and I don't think I've got coronary heart disease. Um, and I think I live a lot more healthy than he did, you know. I, I eat a lot healthy. I don't smoke, don't drink or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> but yes, the, question, the, the answer is, yeah, I, I do think about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, g- I guess the reason I asked that question is because mortality it's relatively rare these days to be exposed to it at that age isn't it, it tends to be something that we as a society just ignore really <laughs> until until you get to like well I, I guess I'm specifically talking about British society there um but you know it's sent it tends to be something you don't really think about until you're exposed to it directly which is is more like a midlife thing isn't it generally you know when people start to you start to lose people around you. It's the, the point you start to kind of question your own mortality and your own relationship to it. So I'm just interested because obviously 16, it's, it's quite unusual. It's, it's so formative, like I said, and clearly it did affect the, you know, did have a huge influence on the way you lived your life. So yeah, just, just interested in that really. Yeah. You know, people say live each day as if it was your last, you know, and I say, well, live, live each 10 years as if they were your last, you know, or, or even more than that. Um, I've got a brilliant quote here. Can I, do you mind if I read a quote no, by the Dalai do. Lama? I'm not yeah. very good at reading. I'm, good, I'm better at writing than reading. Man sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. Then he is so anxious about the future that he doesn't enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die and then dies having never really lived. Well, there you go. It's all a bit convoluted, but you know, doesn't that just sum it, sum it up right there? Yeah. So you embarked upon the endless road trip, as you as you let's call it that, you know. And so, and you mentioned your PhD, which should, which I'd like to get to in a second, because obviously that's a really big part of what you do and how you turned your interest into surfing into you know, an entirely new field of study, if you like. Um, but which came first? Like what, you mentioned the Spain trip and then it's by the sounds of it, you never really left. So wh- when did you make that first trip over? To Spain? Yeah. Um, it was quite late actually, because I think it was kind of about 1990, But I, you know, I'd done a lot of traveling before that, but Spain was like a thing that was, that I hadn't done yet and everybody, well, everybody, the only place anybody had ever really been to or knew about was Mundaka and me too, you know. And, you know so in, through, the, through the 80s, that was when I was living in Cornwall, most of the time in a van, a lot of the time, a lot of the other time I'm sleeping on people's floors and just renting rooms with people, and, but a lot of the time in a van. And... Um, traveling sort of every winter really because that's what you did you stayed in England in the summer and then traveled in the winter when it was too cold which is really the opposite of you know what 
it's like going away from like you, you stay somewhere where, where it's summer where the surf is shit and then you go somewhere else when the surf is good but anyway um so i did quite a lot of traveling then to different places but i, I hadn't really you know been to been to spain um i had i did actually go to spain in 79 and also went again passed through there in 86 but i didn't really go there and really um you know investigate it like i wanted to so it was about 1990 the first time yeah so is it the emptiness that appealed to you like uh, like the, the the fact that you could explore this coastline because it sounds like obviously these this was a this was a big part of surfing for you like you know exploring new places like was that was that what was driving it because because obviously you've like you say that pattern of like go away in the winter then come back go away in the winter then come back you, you you've gone away and not come back so what kind of drove drove you to keep going yeah again it was one of those things it wasn't really a decision i made one day i like to say that i like you know just to sounds funny you know that people say well you know when did you come here what why are you why did you choose spain and you know i just say well you know i came here a few times from england and then one day i decided not to ever go back you know which is stupid because of course i've been back loads of times but it wasn't like that it was just a sort of a really um gradual process um with lots of different factors but the one of the big things also that's been with me right from the beginning is i wanted to do something different um so that was what that was one of the reasons why i got into surfing right at the very very beginning because nobody i knew had surfed i'd never seen surfing um you know i went to a school with 900 boys um, and none of them knew what surfing was, you know. Um, and then when I'd been surfing for about 10 years, I still wanted to do something different. So I, so then I traveled to sort of different places in the, I traveled to the normal places, but then I started going to places like South America where not many people that I knew had been. And then the big wave thing sort of came along and I thought, wow, this is, that's different. Um, you know, I was a little bit fed up with, again, with the small wave, lineups were getting a bit competitive you know in England in Cornwall around the sort of late 80s and that um and um so you know this again sort of big wave surfing kind of found me really um and so I I thought oh that'd be cool you know and then I just kind of realized that I wasn't I wasn't really scared when it was a bit bigger and um and then I, I sort of got into it more and more, started reading about it, reading about these sort of epic things that were going on at the time, Ken Bradshaw and Mark Fu. Um, and then also the that was Mark Fu as well, the first time for years that people went to Peru and surfed that wave Pico Alto, which kind of lay dormant for about 15 years since the 60s or something. And, um, and then Mavericks, when they started surfing Mavericks and that sort of um, came out into the open, all that kind of thing was right at the beginning of my sort of big wave um, enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. And nobody that I knew did it either, which was, which was the biggest, biggest factor really because I wanted to do something different and Spain, you know, I'd heard, heard of Mondaca that it was, that it, it broke, quite big in, you know, relatively. Um, but when I got there, I discovered Menyakoth, which is a totally different thing altogether. You know, it's, uh, 
brakes much bigger than Mundaka. It's much more powerful and it's a right as well. And there was there was virtually no people. I mean, I didn't discover it. I discovered it for myself, but there was already people surfing there. But it was like that was that was a sort of paradise for me. Um, this big right hander that you could surf with four other people, you know. Um, <clears throat> and what did yeah. the locals think of this lone Englishman suddenly turning up and um, ingratiating themselves yourself into into their world? Yeah, it, again, it was. Um, well, I mean, I didn't really. The first thing I was, I was thinking, I, I've got to be careful with the locals. I don't want to like encroach on their territory. There might be, you know, there might be localism there, and um, you know, I mean, I mean, when I first found out about Menyakoth, it was through Craig Sage, the guy who has the surf shop in Mundaka. He's another person who <laughs> went there, and then one day he didn't go back to Australia, and. Menyakoth had this kind of reputation of a real dark sort of um, place that, you know, it had these nasty rocks and, and the waves were far too big, especially for an Englishman. And, um, you know, it was like things that happened there, like broken boards, broken bones, two-wave hold downs. There's this big rip, you know, you could be like end up in the middle of the ocean and all this kind of thing. It had this sort of big, like this reputation. And the guys who surfed there were these Basque, guys who didn't even speak Spanish you know they, they all had big beards and they were these grizzly sort of guys and they made their own boards and to me that sounded like an absolute paradise you know because it was so different and it was so yeah. it was a challenge as well and so but I was a bit afraid of like a bit afraid of the locals you know I thought I've got to be careful you know I've got to be really polite with them I, I don't want to like start trying to paddle out and as if I as if I could like catch more waves than them you know anyway and in the end, they were so friendly. It was just such a surprise. Um, I remember one of the first times I paddled out there, I kind of like felt so stupid, you know, I was asking, you know, like asking these guys, you know, how the, how the wave worked and, you know, if, if it was any good today, you know, and all this kind of thing. And, and, and then, um, and then I just I bumped into the same guys in Mundaka. I don't I don't know if it was the same day or like a couple of days later or something like that. You know, and I sort of went up to them. And I mean, I'm quite a shy person. I don't just go up to people and like start talking. You know, but I I thought I have got to do it. You know, because I'm like so obsessed with this wave and I'm really desperate to know more about it. So I just went up to these guys and I sort of felt a right dick. You know, I said, well, you know, excuse me, I was the guy at Menyakoth this morning or the other day. You know, um. Uh, my name's Tony. <laughs> and I thought they could just give, give me a slap or something or just ignore me. But, but they invited me for a, for a coffee and sat down and it was, it was amazing. Um, and they were actually asking me cause I'd already been to Peru and I'd been to Hawaii and I'd been to a few other places. They were actually asking me what I thought about Menyakoth and whether I thought it was a legitimate big wave spot because right. they, you know, it's the same sort of thing it wasn't famous, you know, and it's not in Hawaii or California, so it can't be any good. And that's what they thought. But then now we know that it is, you know? Um, yeah. 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 It's a common, a common thing, isn't it? With all these waves in Europe that have been kind of, you know, in inverted commas discovered recently, like, um, that comparison and whether, you know, oh, is this legitimate or not? Um, which is quite funny now when you, when you look at it. Um, the other question I've got is, 
about this topic, like your relationship to big wave surfing is you seem to be somebody that's put a lot of thought into like why we do these things. Um, particularly when it comes to your own, um, choices in like big wave surfing or I, I guess I'm thinking about some of the articles you've written for the cleanest line. You know, there's a, there's one on flow state. There's one on like living in harmony. I think you've put it with how we can find harmony with the activities that we do. You, you're um, the guy who read that. You, you're the guy who read those articles. Yeah, yeah. That's that. That's me being a proper journalist. Yeah. Um. So given given that, and I I think this does lead us kind of nicely, which we'll get to in a minute, into your other interests like oceanography and the PhD that you mentioned and wave forecasting and all that stuff. Like, because obviously, it's a physical activity surfing, and you can just leave it at that. But but for you, it seems to be equally as mentally nourishing as well, um, you know, which has manifest itself in all these other explorations around different mechanics of surfing. So, um, when when but this idea of like why do we do these things? Um, what conclusions have you drawn in in those kind of investigations around things like flow state, around the choices that we make to put ourselves in these positions in nature mm, yeah I'm, i might i might end up going down a rabbit hole now trying to explain it because it's quite a uh, a concept that's uh, difficult to get your head around and even diff- more difficult to explain but the idea of flow <clears throat> is is in is right in there you know um and when i discovered that other people had all these psychologists had done this you know work on this thing called flow i thought yeah, that's that's what it's like, you know, when you're surfing big waves. Um, so what you know, it, it's a total concentration. Um, so you're using a hundred percent of your brain power just to do the task at hand, which is paddle and get up to your feet and get down to the bottom of the wave. Um, and for some reason, that gives us our brains are um, genetically programmed for something like that to give us endorphins. A chemical. So, I mean, what you're looking for is 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 a chemical thing. That's that's what we're all looking for in life. Is is chemi- is a is a chemical thing in, in our brains, isn't it? Um, you know, um, dopamine, endorphins, norepinephrine, and all this kind of things. Stuff that I don't really understand. But um, so being in a flow state where you're just totally in in this hundred percent concentration seems to give us this chemical buzz. Um, and so why do we do it um, to, to get that buzz? And why, why do we, why is it like that? Because we're still living, we've still got a primitive, our brains are still hunter-gatherers, but we've created a different world. So we've created, we're sort of a, we've created like a, a round hole that the square peg that our brains are doesn't fit into. So the world that we live in now, the capitalist, consumerist, materialist world, when we live in cities, we don't have flow very much. You know, children have it, and the few people who are still in in indigenous hunter gatherer societies probably do have it, and they don't realise. But I think that's what it is. It's something to do with that. I mean, I would even, I think there's a couple of points to make there. Firstly, yeah, like. You know, we've only been living in cities for, I think, what, 
well, farming's only been around for like 10,000 years, hasn't it? Or like something that, you know, that's a rough, that's probably an incorrect, but it'll do for the, for the basis of this, this little um, conversation. And my understanding, which is fairly basic, you know, from reading popular science like sapiens, stuff like that, like, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not an academic around this, but my understanding of it is that farming led to cities, which led to this, the, the, um, the lifestyles that we lead now, let's put it that way. And then once that was industrialized, which is like 150 years ago, um, that then even more led to the, the, the kind of sedentary lifestyles that can, that we, that are a part of living in this way. Yeah. So I think that's the first thing to say that, that it's very, very recent, isn't it? In human history, you know, if, if, if humans have been around for what, a couple of hundred thousand years, like, mm. 10,000 10, years is, is such a minor part of that. So obviously it very much makes sense. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you is, I did actually write this down because, which is rare for me. Um, the other thing that you talk about in, in these explorations, and I'll link to a couple of these because they're really interesting. I know you took the piss saying, oh, no one reads them, but they are, they are really interesting. And there's not many people writing about surfing in this way. Um, what what have you learned about yourself from from a surfing and then secondly thinking about why we surf in this way jesus these are these are hard questions. this is like an exam you know i was pretty nervous before now i'm even more nervous. <laughs> um uh, nothing to be nervous about here it's um what have i learned yeah well i always say that you know again surfing well you know it's not big wave surfing because that's like starting to become like a real fashionable sort of, you know, that people are going to say, well, you don't surf big waves. You only surf 20 foot waves, you know? Um, but you know, being out in the ocean when you need to concentrate, like I was talking about just now yeah. in that situation also teaches a lot about yourself and, and how you, because you, you don't decide to react in a certain way when a 20 foot set is about to break on your head, you just do it. You just do what, and then you, and then you reflect on it afterwards, you know, yeah. and you say, shit, is that what I did? You know, that was quite good. Or, or um, I ought to maybe learn to do that a bit better. And again, that's all part of it. That's that's the, um, you know, you learn about yourself, and you you learn to to learn. You learn to um, what the next step is, kind of thing. Um, but some sometimes I kind of have to reassess. Um, my own, you know, I think maybe I'm living in cloud cuckoo land. Maybe I'm just like all the others. Maybe I'm surfing just because I'm, I'm competitive and I just want to dominate the lineup and get more waves than everybody else. And, and then, you know, it's, it's the, again, this, <clears throat> this is the flow thing. It's maybe I'm after an in extrinsic goal, not an intrinsic goal, which is all part of the really, you know, ideally you should be doing it for an intrinsic goal which is just doing surfing for the sake of it just because you like being out there um as i remember a couple of these these climber guys um can't remember their names from patagonia said why do they do it because it's nice you know um and that's really all you need to but if you're doing it for some other reason if you're doing it like because you want to get a photograph and then you want to show the photograph to somebody on your social media then get a reaction from them that's not part of the surfing that's an extrinsic 
thing. So you, when you're doing the surfing, you're not thinking about the surfing, you're thinking about this external goal. And sometimes I think that maybe I'm doing it because of that as well. So I sort of have to pinch myself and keep asking myself that question, you know. And then sometimes, luckily, you know, something happens and it tells me that I'm not really doing it like that. So I'm not living in cloud cuckoo land. Um, I don't know, a couple of things, for example, happened over the last few years, which have kind of mm, kind of made me think that, yeah, maybe I'm, maybe it's, maybe I'm right. You know, maybe I'm, I am doing it for the reasons that I'd like to think are the right reasons. Um, for example, I remember once, um, I surfed this, this, this wave that we hadn't surfed it very, very often here in Asturias with a friend of mine from Menyakov. Um, and it was, it was pretty big. It was like one of the biggest sessions that, that had happened out there at the time. There was only two of us out there <clears throat> and, um, uh, so I, I, I caught a wave and I was really lucky, you know, I got, got this wave. It was quite big. And then I sort of kicked out and I looked at him and I thought, I kind of imagined shit. He's going to be really sad now, you know, that he isn't, hasn't caught a wave. And what I really didn't want to do was get out of the water or what I really didn't want to do was catch another one. And then he still hasn't got one, you know? So I just sat in the, sat in the channel and waited for him to get his wave. And that was it. Session was over. We caught, caught one wave each. Um, that was perfect. So I was thinking, you know, if, if, if I'd been the other way, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's not to do with the external goal or anything like that. Maybe, maybe it's just to do with, you know, proving to yourself that you're better than somebody else. I would, if I'd been like that, I would have gone paddled back out and got another, got another wave and another one and then fuck yeah. him, you know? Yeah. And then yeah, get yeah. out of the water and yeah, well, yeah, it is kind of the external goal. Cause then when you get out of the water and there's people that have been watching you, you can go, yeah, look at me, you know, I'm like, this guy, he's an idiot. He hasn't caught any waves and I've kind of won the contest. But it wasn't like that. I didn't feel that I wanted to do that. So that's something I've learned about myself, which is positive, which is really good. Do you find motivate? I mean, it's a general question. Um, again, because obviously you clearly thought about this quite deeply like in, intrinsic and extrinsic that was that was what you said wasn't it do you yeah. find motivations generally a combination of those two factors um yeah but again i'd like to think that motivation is more the intrinsic sort of goal um motivation i mean i'm not that's interesting as well i'm, I'm I, I don't have any problem with motivation at all um also, I remember about a year ago, I did this sort of interview with the with uh, these kids at, at this surf school that belongs to a mate of mine, and uh, so they they sort of sent me these questions, you know, and and uh, they were like I don't know adolescents, like fourteen to eighteen year olds, and like a couple of them said, "How do you um, stay motivated to get up in the morning and go surfing every day?" I thought, what a ridiculous question, you know. <laughs> it's like the opposite, you know. How, how do you kind of stay motivated to like not go surfing and do do the other things that you should be doing, like cooking lunch or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, I find it really interesting that like um, the, the intrinsic extrinsic thing. A good friend of mine's um, somebody that's been on the podcast a couple of times, and she she's you know studied sports science and studied 
and she was involved with like the British skiing snowboard team a few years ago. And one of the things that she was interested in was like how you can essentially, if you put like surface skateboarders and snowboarders in, in like a very traditional sporting environment, like the Olympics, let's say like how you can, which is all about extrinsic, um, goals and also i can't think of the word that i mean but it's a huge factor in like why you would do that you know success fame glory all that whereas you know obviously the the story we tell ourselves about our world is that we're not motivated motivated by those things we're motivated by the intrinsic goals like um but the more that you put somebody from that world into the mainstream world like how can you protect yeah i'm sure you understand what i'm getting Mm. at like how can you how can you find the balance that you can enable you can enable somebody who who has traditionally been intrinsically motivated to to still perform and to still find their place in a world of extrinsic motivation i'm paraphrasing that quite badly and i'm sure if she's listening hello leslie um she'll she'll be thinking like well you kind of got it um, but i think that's a good approximation of it so yeah that's kind of why i homed in on that a little bit because i've had those discussions with her and it's it's I recognize what you're talking about very much like, and I I recognize basically if I don't, if I'm worried about extrinsic factors when I'm surfing, I generally don't surf well or enjoy my surf at all. And sometimes I find it quite related to just general mental health in a way, really. Um, And, but if I can focus on what I'm, intrinsic motivations then i then i then the things that you're talking about flow state you know the 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 dopamine um thing that you get from it because i also find that personally very cleansing experience like if i recognize that i've had a surf that's put me in that state or whatever um i find it to be very i think we all do it's not like it's not like a dramatic insight this but i think we do all find it quite mentally cleansing it's 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 a very recuperative thing mm-hmm. um and, and i personally just find that's it's not something i can turn on and off as an intrinsic motivation but i recognize that that tends to be the pattern you know that, that that's where it, that's where it stems from so i just find it interesting that you've kind of um articulated that so well because because it's not something that i would have been able to articulate really in that way but i do recognize it as as we talk about it um but just just to sort of shift it on a, a little can bit I, yeah um, sorry can i just make i've just i'm i was bursting to say something about that uh, go on then is, fire, away. Really, fire away like kind of paradoxical um so w- what you're saying is when you've been don't forget what you're gonna say what you're gonna ask me you said you don't write anything down don't, please don't forget it um uh so when you've had an intrinsic experience and like surfed you know been out there you know two kilometers out in surrounded by dolphins and big waves and everything and you just and you come in and you're that's nice you to not everybody. That, that, that's you not me right <laughs> well whatever you know I don't, that's, that's an example i put what about, in. The, what about the ship pipes yeah that was an example i put in one of my articles which is actually based on a real experience which i i'm i haven't told anybody about yet which i might tell you about in a minute but anyway um uh, so you like nice to everybody all day then you know which is great uh, because you've got this like um, you're on this high all day. It's sort of afterglow. Afterglow is, is, is a, but then the afterglow is isn't is an actual extrinsic thing itself, isn't it? So you can't like if you know too much about it, 
and you go out there thinking that um you know i'm going to be going surfing these 20 foot waves two miles out with surrounded by dolphins and then i'm going to have all this afterglow all day long and be nice to my wife and everything and but that's an extrinsic goal so you can't really you've just got to go out there and not think about anything really just yeah just exactly it. you can't you can't trick your way into it you can't make you can't make it so you can be aware of it and it is paradoxical you're completely right and also you said something earlier which spoke to this about how you, i can't quite remember what you said but you said something earlier in the conversation that kind of was also related to this you know you can't conjure this stuff up like you have to you have to just do it and then afterwards you can analyze it but it's not something that you can pre-analyze and make happen which is which is very very fascinating um go on what's this experience then that you were you were <laughs> talking about well it's like jumping ahead of uh you know a couple of different little stages where you know i surfed menyakoth for 10 years and then i came back when i moved a bit further west to another area of spain and i i I was the first person to surf this one wave and I surfed it for about 10 years and now it's become a bit of a circus. So don't really want to know anything about it. And then, and then I thought that was the end. That was it. You know, I thought, fuck, you know, where can I go now? You know, and I just suddenly discovered this other place. This was about two years ago with a mate of mine. And it was like even more of an intense experience than, well, I don't know, maybe not even more than my first experience at Menyakoth or anything like that at the time, but it was just, it was right up there with, with the, with the, uh, with those sort of experiences. Um, so we, we checked this spot for like, we checked it for about a year, loads of times. And we decided that we, we thought that you could just couldn't get out there. It was it's just this reef that breaks sort of in front of this cliff and it breaks about a kilometer from the cliff. But there's no way to get out there. This is what we thought anyway, just you know, just paddling your board out. And we we don't want to say anything about it because if we do, people are gonna get, get out there on jet skis. And we, we are me and this little crew, we're anti jet skis, that's <laughs> another story. But um so and then we went there one day and we we just looked along this beach break, which is you know, the beach break's about fifteen foot and closing out when this when this reef is working. And there was this big rip in the middle, you know. We looked at it and we thought, hmm, maybe we could get out through there. You know, it's a bit of a long way. You've got to like, it's about a kilometre out to get beyond the beach break and then about another kilometre and a half along to get to the reef. And we did, we had no like expectations that we were ever going to get through there. And and we did, we made it, you know. And um, we got to the, we got to the reef, but we didn't catch any waves. <laughs> um <laughs> And then, and then we paddled out there again and we managed to get out there again and we got one wave each, me and this guy. And we came in and this is, this is the sort of, a, sounds a bit of a, a bit hippy dippy, but, um, as we were coming in, it was a misty sort of day. There's nobody around, you know, there's this tiny little car park with, and there was nobody in the car park or anything, nobody on the beach. And then we just like heard these this sort of bagpipe sort of music, you know, it was, it's like sort of, it, it was, it was like really nice sort of mellow sort of medieval sounding sort of, I don't know. Uh, it wasn't like this sort of raspy sort of bagpipe thing that some, that you get sometimes. And, um, 
there was this guy on the cliff playing these bagpipes. And we thought, that's so weird, you know. And, and we just, we paddled ice, in. And, uh, ice and pretty wet. <laughs> and uh, we got to the beach. You know, it's quite an effort to actually get out as well. You know, you, you get in, then you've got to paddle in, back in through this 15-foot beach break. And so, you know, you sort of, when you come in, you just sort of flop onto the sand, you know. You know, glad we're back on land again. And then we both looked and we couldn't find this guy playing bagpipes on the cliff or anything. But we both heard it, so it wasn't just me, my mind playing tricks on me. That is um, funny. And so, you know, we called it the Requiem. And um, and then I thought about it afterwards, and I kind of thought that it's really symbolic because, you know, in my in my in my sort of mind that I'm kind of fantasizing a little bit, that guy maybe who was playing a Requiem for that experience that we just had, because maybe that was one of the last times that you know maybe tomorrow that place will be invaded by jet skis and there'll be a big wave contest out there and that'll be it you know but it's sort of like still pure you know and yeah i don't know it brings tears to your eyes when you think about it <laughs> i mean what yeah i've got a lot of questions that's a bagpipes common in the... <laughs> yeah they are yeah in this part of spain yeah really what that's yeah. actually a, a thing yeah, yeah, it's it's a Celtic. Um, oh, of course, yeah. yeah, of course, yeah. There's, there's. I always forget about that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's brilliant. The other, well, what I was going to ask you, you asked me if I was gonna, if I would forget. Um, I've I've been training myself not to forget these things. It's the old thinking on the three planes, Matt Arnie. If you listen to this, um, yeah. So, you know, the other thing you're obviously really well known for, and when, when I first saw your name was when I was working at White Lines, which was permanent publishing, and you were working at Surface Path with Alex, and you were um, writing the the forecasted and the oceanography pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you went and did a PhD. So presumably, as you as you kind of, like I said, the physical side of surfing, as you started to explore different areas and got into big wave surfing was this in tandem then your interest in forecasting and oceanography and also i should say environmental issues because you've you've also been very ahead of your time on on that topic as well so is this all developing in tandem yeah absolutely the it was like a double learning curve really because when i was doing my phd i was also that was exactly the same time which was like the late 90s i was also surfing the kind of mid to late 90s i was surfing menyakoth and learning about big waves and actually um my supervisor went on sabbatical paul russell if you're listening um that was all right um so that allowed me to go to spain and write up my thesis in spain i didn't need to be uh on campus to do it um um, it was because Paul was on holiday on, on sabbatical anyway, so it was just the same. So um, there was a double learning curve. Um, and pretty much at the same time as well was when Alex, when I, when I, when again, this was just a sort of just like a coincidence, really. I remember one day Malcolm Finley, uh, who is a lecturer at Plymouth or was um, a well-known surfer, he phoned me up and I was in Plymouth at the time and he said, Oh, got this guy, Alex on the phone. You know, he wants to, he wants an oceanography article in his new magazine. And so I remember, um, speaking to Alex and I said, I was like really cynical. I said, Oh, you know, a new magazine in England, there's already four magazines, you know, 
oceanography nobody's going to be interested in that and uh, i said but i'll write you an article you know and i don't know what the first article was was about but i at the end of the article i kind of um took the liberty of <laughs> of saying this is the first one in a series of articles <laughs> um and i thought if if that's not true alex is not going to is not going to print that <laughs> and he did so it was the first in a series of articles um and that series of articles hasn't hasn't finished yet yeah and as i remember it you were was about educating people right on this whole other topic of, around surfing that just wasn't I mean, it is covered and it is obviously like a, a, a topic of interest, clearly, you know, but again, at the time, and we should say Surface Path and what Alex did, really, I don't think gets enough credit. Like it, Brilliant. it, it was so, yeah. such a, and Jim Peskett as well, publisher who sort of backed it, you know, it was very bold and it was just a great thing for British surfing at that time, wasn't it? And I think the influence of that, of that approach is still being felt now, really. So I just kind of want to say that really, because I think Alex is somebody who definitely doesn't really get enough credit in the wider conversation these days, considering what he did contribute to, to, to general surf culture. But back to your articles, you know, it was a series and it was about like kind of demystifying these things for, for ordinary surfers, right? Was that how you approached it? Yeah, um, I mean, around that, I mean, in those in those days, uh, I suppose it wasn't. You can say in those days because it's quite a long time ago. Um, uh, wave forecasting was just starting to um, be black boxed, if you like. Um, before that, you know, in in the early nineties or the eighties, when I used to travel when I did some traveling and um, there was no internet or anything like that. We used to get the newspaper and, you know, and watch the telly and we used to watch the isobar charts and that was all there was, the isobar charts. Now, nowadays people don't know what an isobar is. Um, and around that time in the late nineties, when I started doing these articles, I wanted to like go, like sort of go back a step and teach people the basics before they would, before it was forgotten. Because it was, I mean, there was no like magic seaweed or wing guru or anything like that, but it was starting to get a bit more automated. And there was like Surfline was a, it was a telephone. That's why it's called Surfline because it was a telephone line, you know. <laughs> and there was a couple, a couple of ones in England, and and you know, like it was like surfers were sort of, mm, it was all being a bit more, a bit. I thought it was being a bit starting to be dumbed down a bit, and so I wanted to sort of educate surfers to the basics a little bit, especially the isobar chart, because that's the fundamental thing, you know, it still is, really. And that's kind of continued now. So you, you're still writing for Magic Seaweed, like you mentioned earlier, um, and you still, so you mentioned that you've been writing a couple of pieces. So is that, because basically it seems like whenever there's a big storm on the way, you they get you to write a piece sort of explaining the genesis of it and like what's going to happen and is that is that what you've been doing this week basically because there's two two big storms on the way at the time that we're speaking is there uh yeah there's something i think i don't know something coming on thursday and then something at the weekend i think but um yeah that's a i mean there's two things that i do really for magic seaweed which is not very much you know i mean i i don't really you can't really say i work for them i mean i'm freelance and i just give them something every now and again 
One is they're called swell alerts or surf like um, well, basically surf forecasts, which is really good because they're it, it's it sort of unautomates it a little bit. So I give them this sort of verbal forecast. So all I, I just look at the charts and I interpret the charts and I write it down, which is really easy for me because I've been doing it for years, you know. And it's actually a little bit, I mean, you remember the shipping forecast? That was yeah, like yeah. A, yeah, yeah, we course, used to yeah. like live for the shipping forecast. You know, that was like, oh, what time, you know, what's the time? Oh, only an hour and 13 minutes for the shipping forecast. Um, so the, the general synopsis that would come at the beginning of the shipping forecast, so it would say, you know, low, 250 miles northwest of Shannon, moving slowly northeast and deepening, expected Iceland by 0100 tomorrow and all that kind of language. So I've got that kind of ingrained in, in my, in the oceanography part of my brain. And so it's a bit like that is what I do. So I just look at the charts and I do this kind of shipping forecast type thing for them. And then he, the guy, uh, the, the editor, Jason from Magic Seaweed, he just quotes me on it. He says, oh, the forecast of Tony Butt says there's a low out there, you know, which, you know, it's quite nice for the punters, I suppose. Um, and the other thing I do is I send them articles, which is a bit more um, uh, a bit more serious, I suppose, or a bit more involved. And, um, you know, I do ocean- oceanographic articles, a bit like the ones in, that I did for the surface path. Um and a lot of I'm trying to sort of sneak in as many environmental ones as I can, um, which is difficult. You know, it was it was in the surface path. It was great because Alex, you know, the surface path was an in, way ahead of its time. You know, had an environmental big environmental twist to it, um, and Alex was really keen. So, but it's a little bit difficult now. More difficult nowadays. It's uh, that's interesting. Why is that? Because there's less of an appetite to to hear about it or just to find the just to find a place amidst all the let's just call it wave porn (laughs) yeah um because the surface path doesn't exist anymore (laughs) we need something something like that you know i mean magic seaweed was never an environmental um website so i can't expect them to i mean i'm just trying to be cheeky really and sneak in yeah some of these articles i mean it's it's good like it's not good but it's it's like i get more success sneaking them in if there's a wave in danger um you know like like madeira or something like that something happens in madeira and then another wave is just about to be trashed by breakwater or something which the punters will read about that because they've been there and they've surfed it and they don't want that wave to disappear well it's 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 tangible isn't it that like you, you can you can kind of conceptualize that type of damage can't you whereas the other type of environmental damage is is a bit more abstract at points isn't it so it's a, it's a bit less palatable to get your head around i think yeah yeah and so you know again for, for like a few years with my environmental stuff that i've been doing you know especially like with patagonia as well i've been wondering is it working you know how do you measure whether what you do is making any difference and that's like a really big big question um and recently i've been trying to just through the articles because because i don't you know do a few talks every now and again presentations articles but i don't do much else um try to kind of look for win-win situations where there's something in it for them so 
as you as we just said, if it's a wave that's in danger and they've surfed it, you know that that's like, you know, they don't need to kind of think any further. They just oh, we won't be able to surf that wave anymore. And there's a couple of things that I've been doing recently. Like, have you seen that film? That thing, the game changes about um, vegan top athletes not eating oh, meat yes i think i did watch that yeah, yeah 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 i did watch that it was on netflix wasn't it a couple of years ago yeah yeah um and that kind of made me think about that that's like a really good win-win situation because if you don't give a toss about the environment or you don't even know what it is it still doesn't matter because if you eat less meat according to their research um for one thing it'll be like stop you getting these diseases later on in life which you know goes back to my father again but you know yeah and but if you're like 20 years old and you still don't give a toss about that because you think you'll never reach 50 anyway or it's it's too far in the future it's still a win-win situation because not eating or like eating less meat will improve your performance as an athlete yeah that's what they said on that film anyway so if i could convince surfers of that you know it's like um it's a no-brainer you know uh, you don't even need to even think about the environment or know what it is or anything yeah well that's when communication around these topics is effective isn't it because unfortunately i believe you just do need to link it to people's self-interest it's it's i just think it's human nature i i, I kind of think you have to be pragmatic about how you deliver these messages, which is kind of what you're talking about, really. You know, you can beat people around the head with hor- horror scenarios and, and which, which is, yeah, which are all real. Um, but I don't know how effective that is in winning the middle ground over sometimes really, um, which is, which is obviously important if you're going to change these things, I would say. I mean, for example, Going back to that experience that I just described, you know, paddling out to that spot. I mean, that was one of the most intense experiences I've ever had, you know. If I could somehow communicate that to, you know, it's, it's a bit of a sort of a chain reaction as well. Maybe if I could communicate that to some famous surfer or a few famous surfers who've got like hundreds of thousands of followers on their Instagram or something like that, and they, they could go and do that, then they could communicate that to their followers and then there's this thing you know this critical mass thing or this tipping point you know that then maybe it would reach a tipping point and more surfers would be interested in doing that kind of surfing big waves i don't know what to call it i, I, I started thinking about like it's not really free solo because that's a you know but you know it needs to be like uh, you know it needs to be the name needs to be invented for it but then maybe they wouldn't all start jumping on jet skis all the time and going out there and, you know, buzzing around burning fossil fuels in the water, which is just stupid, you know? It's like just like, how can we call ourselves environmentalists if we, you know, we already burn enough fossil fuels in our cars to get there and then we, then we go and do the same when we paddle out into the lineup, you know? So... With the the forecasting work and the oceanography work that you do, like, do you have a view on the debate that's kind of going on right now around, like, forecasters like Magic Seaweed, for example, like damaging local surf communities? As crudely put, but I'm sure you understand the debate. You know, it's like it's quite a common thing, isn't it? 
right now like that because forecasting is more readily available and because people have this information much more at their fingertips you know they can make a decision to go somewhere quickly and that's putting pressure on local communities and certainly in a few of the conversations that i've had recently on this podcast a couple of people have kind of you know like kind of quite punchily said that that's a really bad thing and that needs managing like do you have a view on that particularly from the perspective of somebody who lives in a place i imagine you're quite keen to protect yeah i think you just said it it needs managing you know um it can't be allowed to just um expand out of all proportion but uh again it's there's a sort of a um a bit of a paradoxical side to it um with you know f- instant forecasting for dummies and also google maps um and other sort of things you know tourist websites with the location on there so you just click on it take me there then places that for example near where i live that it's just impossible to get to if you didn't have a good map or you someone showed you where it was it's just a maze of tiny roads you know and you just i mean those trips that we did in the early 90s we just spent we spent like um two months just driving around in circles and we didn't really find any any good surf um uh but nowadays you go to those spots that we didn't find any good surf and now i know that there is good surf there and it's like full of full of people like how did they get there you know these these people from germany or it doesn't matter where they're from you know but um you know that it's like it's just right out in the sticks and then you just get to this beach and then there's like 20 vans there, you know, how did they get there? Well, they got there because of the internet basically. Um, but that's kind of more efficient really. Cause if, so the paradox is that if the internet and wave forecasting didn't exist, people would be driving around more in their cars, wasting fossil fuels um, and not, you know, not, not going surfing. And so that people would be doing, not only be spending more time doing what they don't like because they're just driving round and round in circles, getting lost and getting angry. They'd also be burning more fossil fuels. So I don't know if that's a valid argument or not really. I mean, do you feel a responsibility in your position as somebody that does, this is probably, you're going to be like, Oh, it's another exam question. I'm, I'm, I'm on a roll I'm, I'm... I think you know where I'm going like you know there's a very obvious question here you know you are somebody that that basically does kind of contribute to that culture of instant forecasting um do you feel a responsibility about that like do you feel like do you, is that something that you that you mull over totally absolutely um in fact you know I've got my own um rule you know rule book or guidelines for myself you know if if they asked me to do a forecast. In fact, they did ask me the other day to do a forecast. For the, I, I, they don't. They don't really. You know, sometimes I think they don't really know me. They, somebody wanted to run a tow-in contest at this place, which is like ten minutes away from where I live, and I thought, no way, you know. And they wanted me to do a forecast for it, and I just, I just you know, I'll be out there kind of on the, on the picket line, like <laughs> you know, trying to stop them running the contest. Um, and the, the ironic thing is the guy who runs the contest is actually quite a nice guy. So it's just so like the whole thing is just so backwards. But um, I'd said no, you know, I said, no, I can't really do that. I didn't really sort of 
go into the soap opera sort of, of why I didn't want to do it. But um, and then also a couple of yeah a couple of other places not that not as extreme as that but you know when i when i'm asked to do a forecast i don't i just be a bit more vague you know if i know that i need to be which is good i can do it they give me total license to do that you know they i don't sort of say that somewhere along the north coast of spain you know there'll be there'll be surf yeah. they don't come back and say yeah but you didn't say exactly where it was they don't do that so I'm, it's quite you know, it's, uh, I'm quite happy about that at the moment. Do you think? Do you think like the rise of forecasting sites like Magic Seaweed has? Do you think something in surf culture has been lost because of those? Because you know the picture that you've painted of your surfing life is a really romantic one. Like with with you know back in the eighties, like getting the van, you know, having to work it all out, speaking to locals, t- taking chances, you know probably like a lot of blind alleys a lot of exploration you know a lot that's obviously has been kind of the point for you in a lot of ways as we've been discussing do you think that that's being lost because because it is also instant these days yeah i mean from my point of view i'm obviously going to say that you know because <laughs> um it was better in the old days because i'm an, i'm an old guy <laughs> um but I do believe that, you know, and uh, I, I don't know if you know, recently I did, I tried to do that. Well, I did a sort of short trip in an electric, electric van along the North coast of Spain. I, I just bought go... my first electric car actually, and I'm about to drive it to Northern France tonight. So I'm quite interested in the story <laughs> just cause I'm, Shit. yeah, we need to talk about, we'll talk about that later then. Um, yeah. cause I'm looking to buy one as well, but it's fucking expensive. But anyway, I got managed to get somebody to sponsor me and give me a, electric van for a month right and i wanted to go, go i wanted to go up to scotland and it was when the cop 26 conference was on and i wanted to get all the way up to thurso but i'm i didn't i didn't make it so i just did the camino de santiago which is like from the border with france to fin uh, cabo fisterra which is the finisterre like the land's end of spain you know yeah and so um um, there's a video that's going to be going to be made about it with Lewis Arnold. Going to he came and oh, did great. some filming. Yeah, I know Lewis. Yeah, yeah, and um, and, I, and I did some other filming and I did a few interviews as well. And the sort of philosophy behind it was that, well, it was, it was a couple of things really. Was that traveling, um, old style traveling because in an electric car it's it's a lot slower. You know, you got to stop. You got to work out where you're going to charge the thing. You know, you can't you can't go very fast on the motorway because it just burns up the electricity. Um, you know, because it's so much more efficient. You know, um, and so you got to do it a lot slower, and you can't really go round in circles and keep going back to some spot. You got to sort of keep going in the same direction, um, and that's how we used to travel before. So we used to do less. We used to like clock up less tube time, as it were, uh, but it was you know, we'd use less, a lot less resources. Um, but in the old days, we used to use a lot uh, less resources, not because we knew anything about the environment. It was just because we didn't have any money, you know. And now when I think about those trips I did like 30 years ago, the most, the ones that stick out in my mind more are the ones where we were traveling on the least resources um, and we had to solve problems ourselves. Um, 
and you know, even at even at the time or even before I started doing any traveling, um, that kind of traveling was like the, those guys were who did that kind of traveling were like my heroes. You know, Kevin Norton and Craig Peterson, who you've had the pleasure of doing them. You know, yeah, that was one of the great, the great, man. the great pleasures of doing this podcast. I must say that. Yeah, yeah, they were like they were like my. I mean, I've never met the guy. <laughs> Probably never will. But you know, they were some of the first magazines that I that I bought in the 1970s. Those original stories were in there, you know. And then when the Far Shore came out, all those years later, I thought, "Wow, oh, shit, those guys are still around," you know. And talking about the kinds of traveling that they did, and so the in a in a small way, you know, the sort of similar kinds of trips, but on a much smaller scale that I did about 30 years ago stick out in my mind a lot more um and nowadays i don't know if people um have that experience i'm sure they do but they, you don't hear about it probably but what you, you you know you hear about it on the on magic seaweed or on other websites and in magazines you mostly hear about pros that go around the world to chase one swell you know they go halfway around the world and surf for one day and then come back again and um, so then the, so the punters try to copy that and what they do is they go to the mentor wise for, for five days and spend like 5,000 euros or something and clock up as much tube time as they can, but they spend loads of times in loads of time, like in airports and having a really shit time and, you know, like getting there and getting back is like just a pain in the ass. You know, they just want to be there. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, you know, maybe, maybe I, Maybe I'm just being really well, cynical, just, but I just think you have to work a bit. It, you have to be a bit more conscious of that's going to be the approach, don't you? Really, because like you say, there's there's definitely the you can. I'm just thinking about this because I've tried to organise a few trips with friends recently, and they're very much like I'm not going unless the forecast is good, and which I which I do understand, but equally I I quite like just doing a trip for the sake of doing a trip you know like and and obviously i'd rather get great waves and i'd rather use the tools to do that but i'm not going to let that totally dictate my decision making all the time really so i think it is interesting the way that it does influence the approach really you know i've had super memorable trips where we've had shocking surfs really you know like or or like we've been skunked really as when i've been places and got lucky so I just think, for me, they're all as valid. Personally, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't look at the ones where we didn't get great waves and think it was a shit trip or it was a waste of time, you know. So yeah, I just, I just think it's interesting given your sort of position in this world, in this new ecosystem that we're talking about, really. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to have to wrap it there because, I, <laughs> like I said, I'm going to France in a couple of hours, <laughs> which is. Yeah, I, I, when we start recording, I'm uh, I'm going to ask you some advice on charging distances. But I guess my last question would be um, for people listening to this, and this probably goes a little bit against what we've just been talking about. Like, how can they best maximize the tools for forecasting at their disposal? Because everybody looks at it. Everybody looks at all these things all the time, um, and I'm not convinced everybody's using them in the most productive way all the time. Is that so how it's probably a lot of very ordinary surfers listen to this like so what can they do to use these tools more effectively to sort of have more 
good waves really like have you have you got a view on that i don't know have more good waves i mean um i think i'm i'll say something completely different i think just you know in in the in like this 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 uh, the, the nearest surf spot to where i live is is a small village and there's a wave there it's not that good but you can surf it <clears throat> and not many people go there and there's this one guy who surfs there every day doesn't even check it he just walks he gets changed at home and he walks down and he just surfs whatever there is I yeah mean, he must sort of have a if it's like howling onshore he probably knows from his house you know but i mean more or less and you know and i, I said to him the other day you know don't you or you know when we when when we kind of meet in the water you know he says oh where have you been you know and i said well i've been to south africa or been somewhere else where i've been surfing these places that are like about two hours away you know and he says oh i don't bother with that anymore don't don't i don't bother i you know i had this job where i traveled around a lot and in a company car and i'm fed up with that you know and i just surf here every day and i don't even look at the forecast and i thought what a hero you know yeah, so that's... he doesn't have any fomo or any anxiety about missing some swell on the other side of the world or anything like that but of course you've got you know he lives he's quite happy with the wave that he surfs so um this was another thing that i tried to focus on on that trip and the interviews i did in the electric car i managed to find a few people who who had moved to the place where they like the waves where they live now and they don't want to move. There's this, there's this guy called Mike, Mike Dobos. He's a, he's a well-known surfer in Mundaka. He's originally from Florida. And he, he's been there. He like arrived one day 24 years ago and he almost never left Mundaka, you know, just surfs there. Um, so the forecasting, if, you know, what a, a, a big thing is to kind of live in a place where you like the waves that are on your doorstep and make a bit more of a sacrifice maybe i know it's more difficult for some people i mean i did it um but you know it's like the opposite thing of that 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 guy in this village near where i live if you compare that with somebody who lives in london like near the airport and then they 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 work in a bank or something you know they earn earn millions and um totally stressed all day and then they get a plane to as i said to the mentor wise or to somewhere exotic like the other side of the world and you know, it's the whole thing's really stressful. They they really depend on the forecasts, maybe, or they'll go somewhere where there's a good forecast. Um, I didn't really answer the question, but no, but it's a good right it's in. a good answer. I, I, as you were talking, then I was a bit like, oh, there's my dog. He's uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's just come out. Um, when I, when you were talking, then I was like, that was actually quite a shit question. But I think you've you've answered it really well because it kind of reminded me of um surfing here like again you know it's it's just terrible here you know what the south coast is like and we've got a whatsapp group and the amount of chat there is about the conditions is genuinely hilarious and like friends of mine i've got some friends that are real snobs about it and i'm always just a bit like lads it's brighton like (laughs) it is what it is like you know the idea that we just we just kind of got to go surfing here really like it's probably going to be a bit shit um but you might get a really nice wave and you might have a fun sesh and 
every now and again the wind might shift and it'll be on be offshore and that'll be really memorable and that's that really like the forecast is kind of irrelevant to surfing down here you know yeah exactly um also you know maybe concentrate on something not not to do you know something slightly different from the photogenicness i don't know if that's a word of the waves you know or how much the waves look like those waves in the magazines maybe you're going to have more fun if it's a little bit onshore or if you're out there with four of your mates you know or if you kind of feel good or you don't expect something and then suddenly there's a swell and you think oh shit you know i didn't expect that it's so much more to it than just having that perfect lined up um theoretically you know good on paper swell your experience in the water is never going to be correlated exactly with the you know what it looks like on on magic seaweed yeah so that you did answer it and you answered it (laughs) you answered it way better than the question deserved so thank you um tony i really enjoyed that thanks so much so there you go that was me and dr tony but and i hope you enjoyed it got a laugh at how clumsy my last question was but i thought tony answered it brilliantly um and i just thought the whole conversation was great really enjoyed it thought we covered a lot of ground and hopefully there was a lot for you to get your teeth into a bit more reminiscent of your old kind of like you know tim ferris rich roll chat that um than my usual so um let me know what you think you can get hold of me at podcast at we are looking sideways.com or you can uh, message me on instagram at we look sideways uh, thanks again tony hope it wasn't too reminiscent of your a levels all right housekeeping corner time the statistics as regular listeners will know do show that most podcast listeners turn off the episode as soon as the interview is done which is fine but if you're still listening uh, that puts you in an elite group of listeners and i hope you'll um, join me in a, re- a rousing rendition of thank fuck they've gone as we head into what is going to be uh, be warned a fairly lengthy version of the usual hkc as some people not me do indeed call it so intrinsic and extrinsic motivations um yeah as i referenced during that chat that's something that came up a lot during my conversations with leslie mckenna when we were working together on the gb park and pipe program and i thought i'd have a little quick chat about the olympics actually um because it is on and it is um proven to be the biggest story in town which is something i'll talk about in a minute so i mean like a lot of snowboarders my relationship with the olympics is complicated and it has changed with time back in 1998 that is how old i am when the first half pipe competition was running in nagano in japan um we were running white lines myself chris man and nick hamilton made a point of organizing a free ride trip to italy on the same day thought we were making some kind of stand the idealism of youth, eh? Um, I remember we came back down and heard that Jan Simon had won and were very um, perplexed that Todd Richards hadn't won. Didn't really know who Jan Simon was, if we're being honest. And yeah, so that was 98. About a decade later, I wrote a long-running column for Transworld Snowboarding in which I examined snowboarding's relationship with the Olympics, which I called Shaking Hands with the Devil, which was in hindsight perhaps a little on the nose and which at the time earned me hate mail from Sean White's coach, who really didn't like the fact that um, 
somebody, especially a Brit, was writing something so critical of the Olympics and snowboarding's relationship to it. These days, I'm a little bit more ambivalent about the whole thing. Um, I haven't really watched it this year, um, other than the highlights. And that was more because I just wanted to watch my mates, Ed and Tim, on the TV. Um, I have enjoyed the highlights that I've seen. Obviously, the pipe was brilliant. Um, the My favourite thing probably was Zoe... Zoe's winning slopestyle run and I'm very much looking forward to seeing what influence that has on female snowboarding over the last, next couple of years, particularly in conjunction with natural selection, which is something that I talked about a bit in some recent episodes. Um, so those are my highlights. I do sort of feel that the whole, it was better when you hated us, Terrier was right, we're going to boycott the Olympics thing is quite played out at this point, I must say. Um, I'm not sure how helpful it is to the competition. The Olympics is here. I mean, we're 24 years in, I believe. That is definitely how old I am. It's here. It drives the progression of a certain type of snowboarding. And I agree with the point that um, Leslie McKenna made in a blog for me last year, which I talked about with Sandy McDonald in the post-natural selection interview that we did, which is that, you know, whether you like it or not, this type of progression is as valid as any other form of progression in snowboarding. Um, it's certainly not as sexy. Um, people will still talk about Arthur Longo and side hits and, you know, what snowboarding needs is more bank slaloms and all that bollocks, which in itself is as big a cliche as um, some of the other things I've already mentioned. But it is here. It does drive progression. Um, like I say, I think Zoe's slopestyle run is probably going to be the main driver of progression for women's freestyle snowboarding over the next couple of years. So that's kind of my take on it generally. When it came to this year's Olympics, I think I found two things worthy of comment, really. The first is, like I say, that it is whatever your viewpoint, whether you completely disagree with me, which I know lots of people will. It is clearly the biggest show in town. I mean, witness the sheer amount of coverage dedicated to it by all the snowboard mags, by the way that everybody's social feeds have been posting the same stuff. Like uh, Keisha's Backside Air. Uh, that's just the deal. Like people, like, whatever you think of it, as soon as it kicks off, people do talk about it. They are animated about it and it is everywhere. Not sure what that says about the discourse or the debate, but I just found that interesting. Um Quick aside, actually, on Negate and the judging controversies, which a few people on Instagram have been asking me to comment on. Tristan Kendi's piece for White Lines was really good. Um, it's actually crossed over into the mainstream, the judging thing at the time of recording. Like The Guardian did a really good piece on it. Um, I've also interviewed British judge Gaz Vogan for my blog. Um, I was, you know, I'd like to say I know what that's like, but it's taken him about five days to send those answers over. So I'm expecting quite a lengthy response, which will be interesting. That will be going out on my newsletter, which you can sign up to via my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com. Anyway, I digress. The second thing I've found quite intriguing about the Olympics this year has been the performance of the British skiing and snowboarding team and what that says about the health of our organizational structures at this point in time. Now, I should confess at this point to some skin in the game. As I kind of mentioned to Tony, and as I kind of said earlier, and as I've definitely referenced in my conversations with Leslie McKenna, I was pretty involved uh, in, a, in a communications way, not in a coaching way, with the GB Park and Pike program for the eight years leading up to Pyong 2018, Pyeongchang 2018, sorry. I worked very closely along Les alongside Leslie McKenna, and Hamish McKnight um, 
and a lot of the other people involved in that. And my job was basically to help Leslie with a communication strategy which she dreamed up. And it was about this whole intrinsic, extrinsic motivation conundrum that I was just talking about with um, Tony and which is at the heart of the whole debate around action sports involvement in the Olympics. Um, and it's it's kind of, in this case, what we would try to do was, we try to do two things. We would try to essentially sell our culture to the mainstream and hence unlock some funding and sponsorship, but do that in a way that would help still help the riders square the circle of being action sports people in a very rigid UK sport, anti-Beeb, mainstream sporting world. Let's put it that way. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but Leslie's contention was that the more we could help the riders feel as though they were basically still snowboarders, despite the fact they were in this particular environment, the more they'd be able to perform at their highest level and achieve their potential. It was, in essence, an attempt to unlock the classic conundrum, which I've certainly based my career on, and also which is what this podcast is fundamentally about. How do you communicate the story of action sports to the mainstream without diluting what makes it so unique and great? Which, like I say, is also the fundamental dichotomy at the heart of the entire Olympic snowboarding conversation. And you can see little flashpoints of this conundrum, for example, in the discourse around the judging and the fact that people are putting it down to the fact that the filmers fundamentally don't understand snowboarding so they're filming it in a particular way which is leading the judges to have a certain viewpoint which is leading to judging errors which is leading to a perception of snowboarding in the mainstream which is leading to riders not getting fair results and so on and so on so these things this mainstream perception and communication of action sports it, it is a thing and it does it is real and like I say it's what I've basically spent my career in a tiny way trying to address and what Leslie was trying to address with this um, communication plan that we concocted in the lead up to Pyeongchang 2018 and which was really about providing like I say the athletes with this environment in which they could flourish despite said conundrum so that's what we did um, I ran the comms side of thing and Leslie ran the coaching side of thing with other people obviously there's way more people involved I'm not saying Leslie was solely responsible for that um, for a laugh and because we knew that it was going to be important if we were going to try and get mainstream coverage and hence funding through sponsorship, we called the approach radical gains in a nod to the old marginal gain story that the mainstream had such a rock on for around 2012. That, that incidentally is why Sam Mellish's book is called Radical Gains. Um, I dreamed that up. Hamish hated it, um, but we kind of knew it was a bit of a gag, but we also knew it was a way of basically enabling the mainstream to write about this story there's a great piece that sean ingle did in the guardian by the way in which which we pitched him using the radical gains thing and which did did basically communicate all this um based upon billy um and you know i i think it worked really like i say the comms strategy picked up core and mainstream press which did treat our riders as yes action sports athletes we brought in sponsorship um not huge amount but you know we were seeing this as like a long-term goal at the time um we forged a few partnerships and more importantly you know there was success on the snow billy morgan won bronze in men's big air izzy atkin won a bronze i believe in the female free skiing the whole team performed well and we came out of that thinking that our entire approach had been vindicated cut to two months later 
and we all go to a meeting of the British Olympic Committee HQ in London to meet the new brass who'd been brought in to run the programme after this aforementioned success. Although this had been going on for a little bit, of, for a while, for a few months. The team's success it became clear in the lead up to Pyeongchang had made stewardship of British ski and snowboard quite a plum gig among a particular strata of professional sports administrators who, from what I can see, seem to bounce around between football teams, rugby teams, national bodies and big brands, um, plenty of whom I'd noticed in the intervening years had begun to show up at meetings as it became clear that medals might be in the pipeline. So on this day, I'd been asked to prepare a presentation to a room full of aforementioned brass about the approach. There was people from UK Sport there. There was the new leadership of British Ski and Snowboard there. There was RGB Park and Pipe. bunch of people there. There was a few other people there. Um, that was one of the weirdest experiences of my life because as soon as I began talking, I just knew I was going to get fired. It was really weird and uncanny and quite eerie. It was like the, the energy in the room. As soon as I'd barely opened my mouth and I was like, oh, wow, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> That's clearly going to happen. But I had to kind of like um, carry on with this presentation that I'd been asked to give. So I did. And that presentation basically outlined the approach that I've just explained and kind of took a bit of credit for it. And at that point, the new boss cut me dead and basically said, well, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, because the idea that we need to differentiate between action sports athletes and normal athletes, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, to enable them to perform properly is completely out of date. Um, you know, somebody like Mia Brooks wouldn't think that. And, you know, essentially you're a load of old farts that are still trying to harp on about this stuff years after the fact. From this point, we're going to have one brand and the snowboarders, the skiers, um, everybody are going to be part of the same team. And it's going to be called Snowsport GB. Um, so there wasn't really a lot I could say to that, um, to this casual dismissal of 20 years of work and experience. So I just kind of kept my mouth shut, waited for the meeting to end so I could get out of there as quickly as possible. Anyway, afterwards, as quite often happens, we all went to the pub. And I remember this really clearly because as we walked to the pub, Hamish McKnight turned around to me and said, well, one thing's for sure, you're fucked. Um, to which I replied, yeah, yeah, I'm definitely fucked and I'm definitely out. So we sat in the pub and I end up sitting next to the same person who's just casually dismissed our approach of the last four years and looking for something to say, because as you might imagine, it was pretty fucking awkward. I asked this person how they got their job and the reply went something like this. Well, I was looking for a new opportunity after my previous job ended. And one day I was out for dinner with the person who's in charge of making these appointments who said to me, you like skiing, right? You'll be great at this job. Do you fancy a crack at that? Finish, she finished that anecdote. And then started telling somebody else about what a great time she'd had at Prince Harry's wedding a few weeks earlier. And uh, that was the end of my association with the British Ski and Snowboard Programme. Um, so, as you might imagine, as the next four years have unfolded, I've watched the progress of this new approach with some interest. I've watched as Leslie McKenna, who was really the mastermind of the entire approach, was completely sidelined. I've watched as Hamish McKnight, who was very definitely the architect of the coaching strategies that enabled those medal successes, was also sidelined. And I watched as a lot of mediocre talents with a gift for playing the political game 
have ascended in their place. I definitely noticed a complete lack of sponsorship brought in under the aegis of this new approach. And I watched as the holistic approach to nurturing a community that we'd worked very, very hard on was binned in favour of investing in specific individuals with a perceived better chance of winning medals, which is obviously the way that basically UK sport operates in this environment and which is why Leslie's approach was so revolutionary and I would contend successful. I think that was epitomised by the GB Snow Sports decision to cover the expenses of the World Cup for all the UK sport-funded athletes for the last few years, which is obviously like a quick, short win and something that the athletes um, are going to be pretty stoked on. But, you know, they've not won any medals. So was it successful compared to the previous approach? I mean, that's the brutal way in which these things are kind of judged at the UK sport level. So by using their criteria, I would say you could safely say it's not been as successful. And I've particularly been interested in the way that our athletes have performed in the 22 games, which um, isn't that well, really, um, compared to, you know, the previous successes of the previous two cycles. Now, if in relaying this incident, four years after the fact, I sound bitter, um, I'm not that arsed, really, because I was bitter at the time. And I was certainly bitter that my friends who spent their entire lives dedicated to something... Um, were tossed onto the bonfire of somebody else's ambitions. I was also definitely bitter that decisions that have such an impact on the perception of our sport are decided in such a casual way. And I'm also bitter on behalf of the riders who've had the misfortune to be on the programme at the same time as this approach has been um, piloted, let's say. I've been doing this a while now and it does never cease to amaze me how much people are motivated by self-interest above things like community and um, a bigger picture approach you think I'd be used to it by now um, but this experience in this incident was definitely the most egregious example that I've personally experienced and it's just such a shame it involves such an integral part of the natural the national even snowboarding conversation um, I'm going to be pretty intrigued to see what the people involved where they go next really and I do I might go at the same pub in two months time and see if they're still there anyway on that churlish bombshell, I bid you farewell for this week. Um, my thanks to Tony for doing this episode um, and to you for listening. If you've got any thoughts on what I've said, then you know where to get me at podcast at wearelookingsideways.com or at wearelooksideways on instagram.com. Um, I'll be back next week. I'm off to France, as I mentioned to Tony, as soon as I finish this. Um, so until then, nice one.